0: Girls5Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 231st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is the actor who plays the patriarch of the family at the center of the highest-rated drama series on television, and maybe the last great drama series we'll ever see from a broadcast network. Milo Ventimiglia, a.k.a. Jack Pearson, of NBC's This Is Us. Two weeks ago, for the second year in a row, This Is Us received a Best Drama Series Emmy nomination. No other show from a broadcast network has been nominated in the category since 2011, And also for the second year in a row, Ventimiglia was nominated for Best Actor in a Drama Series. The 41-year-old has been a familiar face on TV for most of this century, having previously played the major roles of Jess Mariano on the WB's Gilmore Girls from 2001 through 2003, and Peter Petrelli on NBC's Heroes from 2006 through 2010. But nothing quite prepared viewers or Ventimiglia himself for the role of Jack, one of the great TV dads of all time, whose life and death have brought even the most hardened among us to tears. Over the course of our interview, we talk about all of the above and much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Kevin Cassidy, our international news editor, to break down a week of announcements that have basically set us up for the fall film fests all over the world, from Venice to Telluride to Toronto and then back to New York. And so, Kevin, thanks for coming in to try to help us make sense of all this. Of course. Let's start with Venice because that is the first of these big ones, and it's the 75th edition of it. It's going to be taking place August 29th to September 8th. This year, Guillermo del Toro, last year's Golden Lion winner at that fest, is going to be presiding over the jury. And the big news that we got a few days ago is that Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land, First Man, a movie about Neil Armstrong is going to be the opening night there. And then in subsequent days, including just today, we've learned a lot more about the rest of the lineup. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that?
1: I mean, in terms of star power and awards buzz, it looks like a very strong year for Venice once again. Like just in the last three years, three or four years, Venice has really just kind of cemented its stature as award season begins. And I think you could probably... It corresponds with Alberto Barbera coming back to run the festival. Mm -hmm. Because prior to that, Venice was kind of struggling. It wasn't really that relevant in terms of awards relative to the other festivals. But he has somehow just really turned it around. So, you know, after all the awards' success, I mean, if you look at the last three years, you had Shape of Water last year, and then, you you know, if you just go back, you had Oscar winners for the past three years, major Oscar winners.
0: At least a picture or a director winner the last five years. Yeah, exactly. Spotlight 2 and... Gravity. Gravity. So he had previously been the director from 99 to 02. He has, maybe, is it just talent relations at at a certain point? I
1: think so, yeah. I think he just, he has great relationships. And let's not discount the fact that Netflix had a very strong showing in the lineup this year. And Venice really kind of put Netflix on the map with *Piece of No Nation mm-hmm. a few years ago. Yeah. Right. So now you look at this year, you have six films from Netflix in, in the main lineup. And, you know, they're not obscure titles. We're talking about the Coen brothers, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, and none other than Orson Welles. Right.
0: Yeah. So I mean, his finished his film, The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah, yeah. those
1: aren't, you know obscure titles and I couldn't help looking at the lineup today and thinking you know I wonder what when Terry Formeau looks at the lineup is he like you know maybe I should rethink this whole you no know, Netflix thing well because, let's just
0: familiarize you know. listeners because basically there was this standoff where because Netflix does not release theatrically really in any volume in France mm. that is in conflict with can Film Festival's policy: We're not going to show a movie if unless it gets theatrical. They're release. not going to show a movie in the competition. In the competition, right. and Netflix is not sending movies to not be in competition. Exactly, exactly.
1: And so you look at something, you know, something like Roma, mm-hmm. you know, or the Coen. I mean, the Coen Brothers have been to Can. I the mean, those are Buster
0: Scruggs for the Coen Brothers.
1: Yeah, I mean, they won Best Director there. Yeah. So there's there's history there, and these are kind of like these are ideal titles for mm-hmm. Can. And I know that they really wanted the Orson Welles movie. That's mm-hmm. another one where that seems like an ideal fit for Can, right. But because they have this policy, they lose out. So it looks like that policy is really benefiting Venice.
0: We'll have to see, I guess, in a few months when we come back around to Cannes' next lineup, whether they blink before Netflix. Because the reality is Can, from an awards point of view, which is you know many of these movies are being positioned as contenders— it doesn't really do that much for you to be at Cannes in May when you've got to survive through the whole fall.
1: Right. The timing issue is really tough for Cannes. Yeah. So they really
0: aren't in a great bargaining position here, Mm -hmm. you know. But just to, again, reiterate the fact, as you say, Netflix has six world premieres at Venice now. Another one is Paul Greengrass's 22nd of July. Then we have, as you say, the Coen Brothers' The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which is really one of the most anticipated of the of the awards contenders this year, his follow-up to Gravity, than others that are not necessarily specifically awards movies. Certainly, like The Other Side of the Wind. Although I wonder how that will be handled because nobody's actually ever seen right. that movie, so right, technically right. it is eligible. And there was a scenario years and years ago where I think with Limelight, the Charlie Chaplin movie, I believe came out years after it was actually intended to, and it did get an Oscar nomination and one category or another, like twenty years or something oh, after. Is that right? I didn't so know that. it could happen here, but then Netflix's competitor, Amazon, is gonna be represented with Susperia, which makes sense. Luca Guadagnino gonna unveil it at home. Also Mike Lee's Peterloo, which is an Amazon title. So the streaming services are really heavily represented at Venice. But also just to quickly mention a few others that we've learned about. Errol Morris's American Dharma. He sits down in this documentary with Steve Bannon. Julian Schnabel's At Eternity's Gate. Jacques Godillard's The Sisters Brothers, an Annapurna film. Lajlo Nemesh's Sunset. This is the guy that won an Oscar for Son of Saul a few years ago. And then one that we really need to talk about, and that is Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born, which stars in its now fourth incarnation of that production lady gaga as an actress and yet it's screening out of competition what are we to make of that
1: gosh that's a good question i really don't know what would go into that decision but it's perhaps strategic Mm -hmm. in that just landing the slot Mm -hmm. the prestige associated with that and the profile that it's going to get heading into award season is kind of invaluable and so maybe you don't want to put it into competition that early, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of, it seems like a, maybe more of a momentum building move, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, start the movie out there, build the buzz, then move on to Toronto and then go
0: from there. That so if you put work.
1: it into competition, you know, that's... And it doesn't win. And it doesn't win right. or something, then that can kind of undermine your strategy. That
0: would be interesting. And if it's anything like the 1976 version, the most recent version of A Star is Born, which starred Barbara Streisand... Who has seen a lot of this one and says it really is a lot like hers, <laughs> then what that one was was a very commercial but critically slammed movie. Right. It actually, though, it, what's what's interesting about Starsborn is everybody who we've heard from who's seen it, whether it's Barbara Streisand or Sean Penn or Robert De Niro or others who Bradley Cooper has been strategically showing it to, they are raving about it. I yeah, guess they, yeah. you know, they're not gonna say bad things about it if it's their friend giving them an early look at his first directorial you know, effort, but they don't have to go nuts the way they have been. So that's sort of in conflict with the idea that it's not good enough to hold its own amongst the other movies that are in competition. But right, I but you never say-
1: know. I mean, there's also the star power aspect to it too, right? So yeah. like, if you're you know, if you're programming the festival and you've got a movie that directed and starring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Right. Even, let's say it's not the greatest movie. (laughs) Are you going to say no to that? Probably not.
0: No, and especially because it's also a big fashion festival in terms of the red carpet. You get Lady Gaga there, you'll get some kind of a a pop on the red carpet out of that. But I think
1: just the fact that they're unveiling it at Venice means they have very high hopes for it. Yes. They feel confident in it.
0: And it is apparently Warner Brothers' big, you know, great hope of this season. Let's close on Venice with one other point, which, you know, we've said a lot of nice things about this year's Venice lineup, but one thing that it is taking knocks over is the absence of female-directed films right. there in a year right. when everybody else seems to be going out of their way to, to try to be inclusive of female filmmakers. I think one-third of Toronto's massive lineup are female-directed Yeah, directed by my films. count
1: at this point, there's 10 female directors in the Toronto lineup and that's that's as of now there're still more announcements to come out of Toronto. Yeah. You know, and you had 3 women in the competition in Cannes which, you know, is not great, but that was at least an indication that Cannes was attempting to address the problem, mm-hmm. right? You had 19, I believe 19 female filmmakers in Sundance. And so you see efforts at the festivals to address this disparity, right? So then you look at Venice and Venice generated some controversy last year by only having one female director in the line, in the competition lineup. Mm-hmm. Right. And Barbera at the time was pretty defensive when he was asked about it. You know, he said it's really not his responsibility that he doesn't produce movies, that he has to work with what he has. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that sounded like passing the buck. I mean, I imagine there is some there's an argument to be made that yes, he can only work with the movies that are out there. But when you look at the other festivals, mm-hmm. you see that they're actually making an effort, and they're programming movies directed by women. So when it happens for the second year in a row that you look at the competition lineup and there's only one woman in the lineup, then you really, you you have to kind of wonder, is Venice making the same commitment? two female directors the way the other events are. And Who's the
0: one woman this year?
1: It's Jennifer Kent with The Nightingale. It's her follow-up to the extremely popular horror movie from a few years ago. The
0: Babadook, yeah. All right, so moving on to the Telluride Film Festival, which starts two days after Venice, always falls on Labor Day weekend, overlaps to an extent with Venice this year. The 45th edition of Telluride is going to run from August 31st to September 3rd. We never know until we get there what their Sort of opener is they call it the patron's preview. It's a it's generally a movie that has some awards potential. You've had Argo in that slot and others, but sometimes that is not the case. Last year, downsizing just sort of didn't live up to its expectations that were set by just being put into that patron preview slot, and they also don't ever announce their lineup until you get there. But because of tensions between Telluride and Toronto. Toronto, essentially now, when they announce their lineup, categorize or classify their films as a world premiere or North American premiere or, you know, one thing or another that basically gives away when certain movies are going to Telluride. So at this point, I think that we can kind of conclude based on those other announcements that Telluride's world premieres are gonna include Marielle Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me? from Fox Searchlight. This is Melissa McCarthy playing an author who has some issues. Yorgos Lanthimos is the favorite, another Searchlight movie. This one with Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz. And this one very highly touted. You've got Jason Reitman's The Front Runner with Hugh Jackman playing Gary Hart, the 1988 presidential candidate who was derailed by the exposure of an affair that he was having, sort of ushering in the tabloid era that Mr. Trump has taken to its highest heights. You've got (laughs) Melanie Laurent's Galveston, you know, already I've said two female filmmakers, Mario Heller and Melanie Laurent. Then you've got David Lowry's Old Man and the Gun, Robert Redford's final acting role, a documentary called Reversing Row from Netflix, directed by Ricky Stern and Annie Sundberg, and Jan Dimange's White Boy Rick from Sony. Then in terms of non premieres, but just other first North American screenings, we have out of Cannes, Paul Polakowski's Cold War, which is an Amazon film, and Matteo Garone's Dogman, which is going to be a Magnolia film in the U.S., and then From Venice, First Man and Roma. That's a pretty stacked lineup, but what's interesting, a lot of people are noting, in addition to complimenting how you know good these films are that they did include, there are also two strange absences. The first, and probably the biggest, is Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk his follow-up to Moonlight, Barry Jenkins is so associated with Telluride. He's been a programmer of the shorts. He started out as essentially an intern there who worked his way up and has been there year after year after year. And it was sort of unimaginable that he wouldn't premiere his follow-up to Moonlight there. And yet that's what we now see as the case. And then also the fact that a star is born going to Venice, then as we'll come to in a moment, going to Toronto, but for some reason skipping Telluride. So Mm -hmm. any rhyme or reason to those things...
1: Well, I mean, I would really only be speculating, but I one possible theory is that the profile that you're going to get—if you're in Venice or Toronto—you're just going to get the coverage is just going to be much more Mm high-profile. I mean, Telluride is important, but I mean, you've been to Telluride. Telluride, I think, to the outside world, is more of a niche and more of an industry event, whereas Toronto and Venice are big, glamorous film events covered by the international press. So, I mean, for Beale Street and A Star is Born, you got to think that that's strategic to some extent, especially A Star is Born.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Beale Street one is strange because it does seem like it's another intimate scale movie and that's that's Annapurna. And, you know, Megan Ellison, who runs Annapurna, which is distributing it, has become a regular at Telluride. She certainly appreciates it. Barry and his Collaborators, his regular team certainly appreciate. So that one, I I am gonna have to see to sort of understand. But I guess *A Star Is Born* again. It may be just coming back to the idea that they don't want to really emphasize that or, or or frame the narrative that it's an awards contender. If people want to embrace it as such, that's fine. But otherwise, going to Toronto, Toronto is much more about just sort of. You're not in that box that you must, you're trying to be an awards contender.
1: Telluride's a tougher audience, right? Yeah. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. Right. So, yeah, I think with The Star is Born, they're looking at the big picture here and they're, you know, they have a long game. And so, Telluride, I mean, if you don't have to do it, then don't do it.
0: Right. Or unless Um, you're really confident in your film's awards potential.
1: Right, right. But Beale Street is a little strange. And I can only think that maybe. Because of the success of Moonlight, they want to ride the momentum of something more high-profile like Toronto.
0: Could be. All right, moving on to Toronto. This is going to be the 43rd edition. It's just two years younger than Telluride. And this year, it's going to run from September 6th through September 16th just three days between Telluride and Toronto for those of us who have to try to have a life between them. We yeah, it's don't. A rough stretch. It's a, it's a, you know, but it's fun seeing a yeah. lot of these movies we've been anticipating, but it's just a grind. We do not yet know what the opening night film at Toronto is going to be, right. but the truth is it's not that important from an awards point of view because they generally program a schlocky crowd pleaser. Traditionally, right, you
1: know, the, uh, the opener isn't something that's going to be a major presence during awards season.
0: But they do have a ton, you know, for, I guess we should just set the context here. It is a massive lineup, I think like 300 or mm-hmm. just under that number of movies, which dwarfs Sundance, Can, Venice, and Telluride. So they cast a the wider net, but they also bring in a lot of good stuff. This year, the highest profile world premieres that they will be having include Felix von Groningen's Beautiful Boy. This is Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell for Amazon. Peter Hedges' Ben is Back for Lionsgate and Roadside. Claire Denis' English-language directorial debut, High Life. Anthony Morris' Hotel Mumbai, starring Dev Patel. This was a film that was caught up in the Weinstein Company bankruptcy. As we mentioned, Barry Jenkins of Beale Street Could Talk. Nicole Halofsener, speaking of female filmmakers, The Land of Steady Habits for Netflix. Dan Fogelman, This Is Us, creator's Life Itself for Amazon. Emilio Estevez's The Public still up for grabs in terms of U.S. distribution. Al Hicks, follow-up to the great documentary, Keep On Keeping On. This one is called Quincy. It's a found footage documentary for Netflix that is very highly anticipated. Trevor Nunn's Red Joan, up for grabs in terms of distribution, as is Michael Winterbottom's The Wedding Guest. And then one of the most anticipated world premieres out of Toronto, certainly this year, Steve McQueen's Widows. This is the guy who we all know for 12 Years a Slave and Shame and a host of other really good movies. He's now back with a big studio movie from Fox called Widows. What do you make of those world premieres?
1: Well, I have to say that, you know, relative to Venice, this lineup is not as strong, but in fairness to Toronto, this is only the... We don't know. We don't know what their full lineup is going to be. This is just the first announcement. I mean, with that in mind, I think there's definitely some titles here that have a lot of buzz surrounding them, especially the Barry Jenkins movie and definitely the the McQueen movie, which sounds... Interesting in that it's a genre
0: film. And starring Viola Davis, Oscar winner, recently.
1: And so it looks like a commercial movie, which is an interesting move after 12 Years a Slave. He's not really known for that sort of thing. So I think that's going to be interesting. But when I look at this lineup, not as many titles on this lineup jump out to me. Like, I want to see that Mm -hmm. the way they do on the Venice lineup.
0: But in fairness, a lot of the movies that we mentioned as Venice world premieres will be yeah. In Toronto, they're just right. not going to be world premieres. So we right. should mention those will include Can You Ever Forgive Me, the Melissa McCarthy one, Cold War, Dogman, First Man, The Front Runner, Sisters Brothers, A Star is Born, White Boy Rick, and then a bunch from Cannes, Nadine Labaki's Capernaum. Nadine Lebaki actually won the TIFF Audience Award a few years ago for mm-hmm. another one of her films. Wash Westmoreland's Colette, his film that he made with his late partner, which was called Still Alice, premiered at Toronto and ended up winning Julianne Moore Best Actress Oscar. Asghar Farhadi's everybody knows. Yeah,
1: in that context, Toronto is really important. Because of its positioning after Venice, and even after Cannes, if there's, you know, the Cannes lineup is also massive. So if you miss something in Cannes, Toronto offers you a chance to see it. Yeah, And if you don't make the trip to Venice, which... A lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. Venice is extremely expensive. Yeah. And why go to Venice if you know Toronto is right around the corner and it's right there?
0: You can reach a lot more press, a lot less expensively. And yeah, I mean, that was, for instance, what they did last year with the Florida Project, which was mm-hmm. one of the great movies of the year. And just to mention a few others that are going directly from Cannes to Toronto, unless they make an unannounced stop in Telluride, Zhang Yimou's Shadow, Hirazaku Corrieta's Shoplifters, which actually which was a big was the winner at Cannes,
1: the Palm Door, yeah. Cannes.
0: and Paul Dano's Wildlife, which right. is has gone to IFC Films,
1: yeah. So I mean, Toronto offers you a chance to kind of continue. It's like a reset button in a way, right? Because if something premiered in Cannes, enough time has gone by, you can yeah. almost kind of start over. Yeah, like I said in Venice, like like the prestige of opening in Venice is great. But the amount of attention you're going to get in Toronto, if you have a strong showing there, is going to be
0: invaluable. Right. And that Venice to Toronto, sometimes with Telluride in between, has proven very effective for movies like The Wrestler and mm-hmm. I think Black Swan and some others where they're smaller scale, generally indie movies that get a lot of excitement out of maybe even some maybe a prize out of Venice. And by the time they get to Toronto, people are dying to see it. That's exactly right.
1: And and, and Toronto is a public festival, you know. Yeah. There's no competition. Right. The only competition they have is basically the most popular movie right. with the people. Right. And so I think it's a better gauge of commercial prospects for mm-hmm, a film mm-hmm. a combined with the prestige and positioning it has in the award season. So that's something that the other
0: festivals just don't have. And for something like A Star is Born, that is going to be D-Day because Yeah,
1: that's like that's the kind of ideal scenario or not. Right. It <laughs> could go you, either way.
0: Right, and there are plenty of movies that have gotten to Toronto and died. It happens every year. Every year. Big I mean ones. Every yeah. year when
1: we cover Toronto, there's a slew
0: of movies that we
1: think are going to have huge commercial prospects and are going to do well critically and in an award season and they just disappear.
0: Right. So winding towards the end here, we want to talk about what happens just a few weeks, maybe less than two weeks after Toronto ends. And that is the 56th New York Film Festival running from September 28th through October 14th at Lincoln Center and its assorted properties in on the upper west side of new york they are not it seems as demanding as some of these other festivals certainly this year in terms of saying our marquee nights our opening night our centerpiece night and our closing night must be world premieres in fact they've got the favorite which we mentioned will previously be having its world premiere at telluride that's going to be their opening night this year centerpiece is going to be roma also coming via venice And Telluride and Toronto. And then their closing night has not yet been determined or announced, as is also the case for the rest of the lineup. But that opening night slot is interesting because it is really the big film event of the year for New Yorkers. And it is always followed by a big after party, usually at Tavern on the Green. There is a lot of attention there from the media, from everybody. And so That can be a great launching pad, or it can be the kiss of death. And in (laughs) in the 21st century, we've seen it work out very nicely for a host of movies about Schmidt, Mystic River, Good Night and Good Luck, The Queen, The Social Network, Life of Pi, Captain Phillips. But we have also seen that be essentially the last gasp of air for Carnage, The Walk, Last Flag Flying last year. So it will be interesting for The Favourite, although the verdict on The Favourite may already be in.
1: Right. And plus, I mean, you know, they're in a really tough spot on the calendar. Right. You know, I mean, you're following up after basically what starts in Cannes, what then goes to Venice, Telluride, and Toronto. So, I mean, that's a, not a great position to be mm-hmm. in, you know. So that, that explains why they're not as stringent when it comes right. to the world premieres. There's just not, I mean, how many movers are there? They have know?
0: a very small lineup and they will always, you know, where they do a lot of premieres are for foreign films documentaries mm-hmm. the lineup's always generally very strong but it's small and i think the big perk of going to new york is that it is the media capital of the world right. so you you will get a good amount of attention by being there in a small lineup but yeah. if you're not a very good movie you may not
1: want. but you know having an event like that like you said especially for foreign films right. that's invaluable because yeah. during this stretch foreign films smaller films tend to get completely and totally overshadowed. So to have a venue like that, even if they're not world premieres Mm -hmm. that offers these smaller projects that are foreign, Mm -hmm. especially offers them the opportunity to get some attention and generate some momentum. That's extremely valuable.
0: Yeah. And they treat them just the same as, you know, they will treat the favorite, for instance, you will generally get a big screening at Alice Tully Hall. You have your sort of red carpet there, it's a... Right, and
1: that's not going to happen at the other festivals. No, you will be shunted into a small theater. You're going to be marginalized and uh, you're you're just going to get lost in the shuffle. So I think it definitely has value for those kind of
0: projects. Absolutely. Can I ask
1: you a question? Please. I'm wondering, looking at the Venice lineup and Toronto, Mm -hmm. what films specifically jump out to you that you want to see?
0: Absolutely. To me, the top three are Damien Chazelle's First Man, Mm -hmm. this I have kind of gathered is an immersive, I think it's going to be an IMAX in some cases experience, like a Dunkirk or something where, Mm -hmm. and you've got Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy as the stars. I think that, you know, coming off of La La Land is going to be fascinating. I would also put Roma, Alfonso Cuaron's movie that we've been talking about. There's no major stars attached to it, but it's a very personal, movie on a totally different scale. So if La La Land was sort of a smaller scale thing and now Chazelle's going to epic scale with mm-hmm. First Man, you've got Quaron going opposite. from Gravity, yeah, the opposite yeah. from Gravity to yeah. this.
1: And it's interesting to see directors do something like just back-to-back something completely different. Totally. Yeah.
0: And so that that'll be exciting and I imagine that Quaron having his world premiere in Venice at a festival presided over by one of the other three amigos of which he is also one that can't hurt I can't hurt and then the third of mine I would have to say just based on the fact that it's showing up at several of these and who's involved would be the favorite which I just think Yorgos Lanthimos is a yeah, really yeah. interesting filmmaker. I love The Lobster. I'm with you on that one, definitely. You know? If so.
1: I had to choose three, that would definitely be in my top three. Yeah, what else? And the other one that I I really, really want to see is Suspiria. Yeah. Because going back to what you were saying about switching gears, I mean, first of all, I thought Calling By Your Name was the best movie of last year. It was And excellent. so for him to go from something like that to tackling Suspiria... And to hear some of the things you're hearing about it, yeah. <laughs> I'm very curious about that one. And then there's another movie called Vox Lux by yeah, tell uh, us about director Brady Corbett, who I believe this is only his, his second movie. He's an actor turned director. He's very young, but he directed a movie a few years ago called The Childhood of a Leader, which I thought was really, really good. Hmm. And this movie, I don't know much about it, but based on that first film, I'm really looking forward to it. I believe it's something of a musical. Natalie Portman stars, and uh, I believe it also has songs by Sia. If I'm wow. yeah, if I'm not right, mistaken, well, so I'll I'm very curious about that. Know.
0: Yeah. As we wind down, we can just note that New York is followed actually overlaps a little bit with the 62nd BFI London Film Festival. That's October 10th to the 21st. All we know about that right now is that Widows is going to be coming from Toronto to there to be its opening night. And we do not yet know much about AFI Fest, which now has a new director, Michael Lumpkin, who had been running AFI Docs and is now going to be doing that. And the AFI Fest, which is the major fest in Los Angeles, there's sort of rumblings that maybe Mimi Letters on the basis of sex, the Focus Features film in which Felicity Jones is playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, would be one of the big ones that will be there because it's not quite ready, apparently, for the earlier fests. And then it looks like likely to skip all the fests altogether will be Brian Singer's Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury for Fox. I don't know that that's a reflection on the quality of the movie. It's just maybe not a fest-friendly like, movie. Doesn't yeah.
1: seem like a festival yes. movie
0: <laughs> <laughs> So we've got a lot more to look forward to hearing and seeing. And Kevin, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And now for my interview with Milo Ventimiglia. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 41-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How early rejections and bit parts shaped him into the actor that he is today. How, after his two seasons on Gilmore Girls... He experienced, in quick succession, the highest of highs and then the lowest of lows, the latter of which almost led him to quit the business. How a meeting with Sylvester Stallone, of all people, helped him to kick his career to the next level, leading not only to a major film role, but also, indirectly, to four seasons on Heroes, which received a Best Drama Series Emmy nomination in 2007 for its first series. What it was like landing This Is Us, jumping backwards and forwards in time and facial hair during the show's first two seasons, and until the beginning of the second season, keeping one of the biggest secrets in TV history. What we can expect from Jack in season three, which is now in production and which will hit the air on September 25th, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. (laughs) All right, Milo, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Happy to be here. Thanks, Scott. Absolutely. We always begin just some
2: basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did Uh, your folks do for a living? Born and raised in Anaheim, California, not too far from Disneyland, Mm -hmm. and my father worked in the printing business, and my mom was at home with us until I was about, I think, 11 or 12, Mm -hmm. and then my mom started working for my grandfather's tool company, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and then when they sold that business, then uh, my mom actually went back to school and got oh, wow. her teaching credential and became a teacher. Terrific. And now they're both happily retired. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> They've paid their dues, their, made their time. So.
0: Absolutely. Well, do you remember when and why you first even dabbled in acting, even if it was just the, you know,
2: earliest childhood thing that you did? What was that all about? I mean, my sisters and I, we used to always creatively pretend, put on different characters, you know, grab my mom's shower cap or <laughs> Or, you know, a kitchen kitchen wooden spoon and just kind of they, those became a swimming mask and a magic wand, you know. So we were always pretending with these these grand characters. I feel like that my mom and dad would read to us when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And that evolved as we got a little older into putting on plays for my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And they had this natural kind of theater stage in their house, mm-hmm. that I, the one that I grew up in from the living room going into the family room was a step down. And I had this kind of, there was an archway that lent itself to having a proscenium Yeah. to where we could kind of like do costume changes or grab props or things like that. So it all started when I was a kid, That's you know, amazing. and then it was just whatever local stuff I could be in. And, 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 you know, my mom and dad were very, very encouraging. And I don't think they ever wanted to take anything away and say, no, you can't do that. So my parents were encouraging of theater and sports and get your good grades so no one can tell you you can't do your theater and your sports, and that was it.
0: Well, so you know as kids get into junior high school, high school, they start to categorize each other. Sure. There's the geeks, there's the you know
2: theater kids, there's the <laughs> athletes. Did you fall neatly into one of those groups? No, man, I was all yeah. of them. Yeah, <laughs> I think I was as nerdy as I was cool, you know, and and it was something that— Because I did everything, Mm -hmm. I was able to make friends with everyone. It sounds like you were
0: popular. You were president of the student government, right?
2: My senior year, yeah, I was senior class president. And 20 years later, I didn't realize that came with people wanting you to organize reunions and I was <laughs> like god I was like guys come on no that's it's not my job You got a few I, other I, things to I do I signed up when I was 17 yeah I got a couple I got a day job it keeps me real busy it wakes me up real early Right But yeah I did student government I did theater I wrestled in high school I kind of did everything you know and really tried to make sure that I was I was seeing all sides of growing up yeah. being good but also getting in trouble
0: <laughs> Well so as high school came to an end and you now had to make some Decisions. What was your outlook at that point? Did you know that this is where you were going to end up, or did you kind of have to sort things out?
2: I knew it was a theater background, you know. My wrestling coach wanted me to, you know, continue. And, hey, champ, we got got a great program at Northwestern University. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as, as he's kind of like, you know, futzing with his cauliflower right. ear. Got to send a big, big love out to uh, Coach Alan Clinton, though. He uh, <laughs> he helped raise me, along with my mom and dad. But then my high school drama teacher, Mrs. Herida, she was like, Milo, I— I just have to tell you, I think you can have a career in this. And when I really started to consider what that looked like, I thought, you know what? I think I can, too. And my parents had always instilled in my sisters and I this confidence in ourselves and what we set out to do. And, of course, you hear stories about Hollywood, but they're they're a little more like, you know, hey, kid, don't walk into that room. Hey, kid, don't get, don't take drugs. Hey, kid, don't get caught up in that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, it was never, hey, this is going to be challenging yet rewarding journey, mm-hmm. you know? And and when you are a kid, you think about being 40 feet tall on a movie screen. You don't think about, no. You know, the real success is being a working actor, mm-hmm. being able to put on a lot of different characters, a lot of different hats and coats and shoes and all that and say, oh no, today I'm playing this man, tomorrow I'm playing that man. Mm-hmm. So I think when I was younger, it was a confidence my mother and father put into me to do it. And I just said, you know, I, I think I want to do this more than fly fighter jets. I think I want to do this more than being a pediatric mm-hmm. surgeon. I think I want to really pursue the arts. And you had sort of dabbled even before you had to make
0: that decision coming out of high school, right? Because I was reading about at 16, you auditioned for Batman
2: and Robin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, the uh, the Joel Schumacher one yeah. with was it Val Kilmer and Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, I did. Well, let's just... Let's not call it audition. Let's not call it audition, because I know what auditioning really is <laughs> now these call. days. Yeah, it was a cattle <laughs> call, man. There was a, there was an announcement in the newspaper, and, and you know I'd always I'd always been a big Batman fan. I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna be Robin. This is incredible. This is gonna be so great. Like I'm they're gonna pick me. And no, I waited in line at Warner Brothers on the outside, and then they walked us straight into a soundstage. They sat us up in bleachers, and then they just kind of said, hey guys, thanks for coming out. We're just gonna kind of look around and. You know, grab a water and your way out. Thanks so much for standing in the heat. And just kind of like walked out. That was it. Literally walked in, sat on 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 like oh. a, a sitcom bleacher, and then walked out. And that was it. I'm like, wait, that was it? That's rough. <laughs> Meanwhile, cut to four years earlier. Right. I went to another open casting call for at, at 12 wow. for the movie Radio Flyer okay. with Tom Hanks. Yeah. And of the 3,000 kids that showed up that day, it got narrowed down to, I think, eight and I was one of the wow. eight and we were reading lines and reading scenes and whatnot. And and it was one of those moments where at 12, I'm like, wow, I got pretty close. Mm-hmm. I got narrowed down. And it was, it was a fun adventure for my dad. And I drive up to LA from Orange County yeah. and, you know, do a real audition. Let me, let me see if, you know, the, the local community the Shakespeare I was doing is going to pay off. Yeah, And so when at 16, I'm like, all right, They didn't pick me, but I got on the studio lot. I got on the lot. I walked in the door. So I'll take that as a victory, positivity. And probably the first time
0: someone who wasn't a family member, a friend, or a teacher who all have some degree of obligation to be nice to you said objectively that there's something here.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean— Definitely, win the radio flyer. Definitely not for Batman right. and Robin <laughs> at sixteen. But you might have dodged a bullet. I don't remember it being such a great. Yeah, movie. <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe I'm still holding out for like Bruce Wayne or right. something. But yeah, I mean, I I, I kind of got bit early to to really follow it as a as a real career. So you graduated from
0: high school in '95. '95, yeah. And that same year, you got your first actual credit, so your first job. Preference. on Fresh Prince of yeah. Bel-Air. yeah, One line. Do you
2: remember your line? Relax, Ash. We're just taking a little <laughs> tour. <laughs> That's it. I That's just, it, man. I
0: went and YouTubed it today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still uh, up there. But I guess it wasn't going to be a game changer for you, but it was kind of... must have been an interesting thing to see someone who was only, I think, eight years older than you, Will Smith, at the helm of a show mm-hmm. and how he handled
2: that, right? 100 and 1,000 million percent. <laughs> that probably set my career in such a positive path just by being on that set with Will at the helm. Only in the last several years that I really realized the impact a number one on set can have to the crew mm-hmm. with their either positive approach or their negativity. Mm-hmm. And Will was 100% positive, engaged with the crew, knew everyone's name, spoke to me for a couple minutes. I mean, here I am, one kid on one episode with one line, and he stopped and talked to me, asked me where I was from, what I was doing. I was going to school. Oh, cool. Great, great, great. Thank you so much for being here. The the conversation probably lasted about that long, but I thought I was having this, you know, long sit-down lunch with the guy (laughs) standing next to Craft Services, but... What I saw was a major movie star Mm -hmm. being kind Mm -hmm. and still on top of it Mm -hmm. doing the work. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I wanna be him. I wanna be Will Smith. I wanna be the guy that is doing the the top tier work, who is showing everyone that they could have a great time on set. He's just he's positive and he still is positive. So I think that was probably, you know, at eighteen, the best lesson I could have learned. And also it was just, it was exciting to tell my friends like, yeah, man, I'm going to be on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This is rad. I grew up watching the <laughs> show. This is the coolest thing in
0: the world. It is. Well, so actually you followed that with a bunch of other nineties, you know, well-known Saturday morning shows. stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I totally. mean, people will remember Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Saved yep. by the Bell, yep. The New Class. Yep. But for you, even though you're getting credits, it was kind of frustrating, right? Because it was not a lot of meat on any of these bones for a while.
2: No, it wasn't a lot of meat, but also I never, I never worried about that. Mm -hmm. You know, it took me a while to become a fully formed actor. And I think when I was 18, 19 years old, I was still going to school at UCLA, School of Theater, Film and Television. I was waiting tables. I was working at a snowboard shop. I was doing all these different jobs. And I knew that I would have to earn the place for the bigger roles. I mean, I would see these movies that I really loved. I would see these performances from younger actors, Uh not just, you know, the the one or two generations ahead of me, but like contemporaries, Uh you know, and I thought, man, I want to do that. I can do that. I can do that.
0: And throughout all of this, though, in those late nineties years, you're saying you were in class and just what on the side auditioning when you could get know, make time or whatever.
2: Yeah. But then, I mean, there were moments where I was walking out of class because I had a callback or Mm -hmm. something. And, you know, sometimes the professors, they weren't too happy about Mm -hmm. that. And a lot of the time I didn't care. In my mind, I was living in Los Angeles, going to school, studying theater and film and, and understanding a lot of the craft behind it. And... I also knew, though, I had to take the opportunity when they came, mm-hmm. you know, take the opportunities when they came. Yeah. And that was hard, I think, from an academic standpoint. But I had a handful of professors, particularly in the acting track, that were like, no, no, go do your work. Mm-hmm. Go for it. You, you've got it, kid. Go do it. They saw the big picture. They did. You yeah. know, I had, this, I had this this amazing teacher, Sandra Caruso, who mm-hmm. just, her her husband taught screenwriting, and she taught acting. And she was always so encouraging and so simple and and, and direct with her notes. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, she'd say one thing to me and he would just completely, like, open up a conversation I'd have with myself, by myself, for the next, you know, two or three days. But she also knew that I couldn't be confined to a classroom. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, you've got to go out and take the opportunities. And the first
0: real substantive opportunity that you got would have been Gilmore Girls?
2: No. Something Actually, even no, that? no, no, no. Yeah, much before that. The, the little more less known show, but deeper on my IMDb page, yeah. was a show called, first was a show called Opposite Sex, mm-hmm. which was my second regular job on a TV show. The very first job I had was a show called Rewind for Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. the second job being Opposite Sex, also for Warner Brothers Studio mm-hmm. for Fox Network.
0: So you're, by the way, back on the lot where you'd been yeah, put on totally. the bleachers? No, 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 totally. Yeah, <laughs> where I was
2: put on bleachers, totally. It's funny. I've, I've got a long history with yeah. the Warner Brothers. And this was a show that, it was early dramedy. Mm-hmm. We, it was like, people would call it a dramedy before even people knew what a dramedy was. It was like
0: single cam?
2: Yeah, it was single cam, mm-hmm. but it was it was hour episodic, but it was a comedy. Mm-hmm. And it was about these three guys going to a formerly all-girls high school, just recently made co-ed. Mm-hmm. And it was me and Chris Evans, so Captain yeah. America, and this other actor named Kyle Howard. And it was the three of us and a lot of like fantastic actors mm-hmm. in the show. But from that came a contract at Warner Brothers. And then as my contract was expiring, because as they do, mm-hmm. and they didn't have any work for me, out of that was this opportunity for Gilmore Girls.
0: Which is over on the on WB channel. Which, yeah. yeah, WB Network, yeah. produced by Warner Brothers Television yes.
2: Studio. Yeah.
0: And did that work out that, hey, we've got a part specifically in mind? Because, I mean, the show was already going. I think when you joined, it was just the second season. season. So did they say, we've got a a part that we're going to slot you in for, or you still had to go out for it?
2: Oh, no, I had to audition. I had to audition. But Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Mm -hmm. Palladino tell me the story that they had seen something I had done. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of clocked me. They put a pin in me and went, we like this kid. Mm -hmm. And they had an idea for a character and they hadn't even written the character yet. They just said, We have this idea for this character. We want to do something. We think with this kid. So let's just bring him in to read. And they brought me into read. And I think I had scenes from a different character. It might have been Dean. It might have mm-hmm. been Tristan. Hmm. Can't remember exactly who the character was, but I remember not reading Jess' yeah. sides. And what I didn't know, it wasn't an audition of acting. It was kind of Amy and Dan getting me in the room to see if they liked me. Right. And Apparently they did. Uh, and apparently they did. <laughs> and they did, yeah. So. so just to
0: remind people, Jess Mariano is a bookish, but kind of angsty, troublemaking boyfriend of of Rory's. Broody, um, pompadour, yes. wears a
2: leather jacket. <laughs> yeah,
0: all the things. And so you show up, second season, and Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, who people more recently know for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Which is so incredible. So great. Oh my God. But they'll be able to tell what I'm talking about from that when I say that she writes very densely, very dense dialogue that she also expects to be delivered at an unusually fast pace. Is that fair to say? Yeah,
2: that's fair to say, but I will defend them in... They love actors. Oh yeah, and and, I don't mean and, that and in you, a bad way. I think yeah.
0: it's ama- just different style yeah. than most writers. Right. One hundred percent. It's yep. different.
2: It's different even for most actors. You know, mm-hmm. their style of writing and let's just say the 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 kind of poetic lyric way of the the banter on Gilmore back and forth. Mm-hmm. Like it needed that speed, but it it couldn't just exist as words coming out of you know motor mouth or right, anything. Right. Right. It had they had to have meaning and significance. Yeah. And that's I think a testament to the great acting that was on that show and and what continues for Amy and Dan with The Marvelous Miss Maisel, I mean, their words are poetry and the actors that they entrust with these words are mechanics. I mean, they're so good. They're so good. They're artists, you know, that are just really... Being able to condense an 80-page script for an hour of TV, Mm -hmm. but yet still have heart and ambition and, and character journey is... It's difficult, but it's they show Dan and Amy do that is possible. And they
0: had to deal with something that you guys still at This Is Us have to deal with, but a lot of other shows no longer have to, which is commercials. I mean, oh, that's yeah. a pain in the ass to have to yeah. structure all of this, and it's just a different yeah, style. Five
2: act, five-act style, man, not yeah. TV.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess the other thing to their credit is that, as with you and Alexis Bledel, and now with Rachel Brosnahan, mm-hmm. they seem to find young talent who have not, maybe they've shown a flicker of promise in other things, mm-hmm. like, like Rachel has had with House of Cards, sure. or you had with these earlier Warner Bros shows, but like... These are not easy, you know, no brainer decisions, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, they're in essence changing the course of a young actor's career. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say that Gilmore Girls kind of put me on the map. Mm-hmm. It really, because the show was critically acclaimed mm-hmm. and it was popular among, you know, the youth. <laughs> yeah. But also, You know, anybody that's our age now in like their forties and thirties and Mm fifties and it was kind of a show that everybody really embraced. Totally. But because of that, I was like, Oh wow, I'm I'm on the map now. Great. Okay, I'm here.
0: That's great. Yeah. I just as a weird aside, I am from Connecticut and I only moved out here in twenty twelve. So my prior trips here had just been kind of almost like a tourist. Mm -hmm. And did you do
2: the studio lot tour?
0: Yeah. Oh, you did. And I came through on a day when they were filming Gilmore Girls. And I yeah. definitely remember seeing Alexis doing something, but I, I wonder if I also probably may well have maybe. seen you. Yeah, yeah.
2: maybe. I, I was probably standing in the shade. <laughs> Gets warm out in Warner Brothers. Right. That, <laughs> back, that, that back lot. Woo! It's true. It's warm. So at the end of the
0: third season, spoiler alert, I guess 15 years later or whatever, <laughs> Jess and Rory split up. She heads off to college. Mm-hmm. Should things have worked out between the two of them? Would they have worked out if she had gone west with him? Are you team Jess, Team Dean, Team Logan? People still debate these things.
2: All the time, yeah. man. I see the t shirts. Actually, yeah. I was I was at a Comic Con and saw a T shirt which I thought was pretty genius. It said Jess, Peter, something, and Jack. And they were all these kind of like characters that I'd played yeah. on all these like different yeah. T V shows. And you know, I, I was always a Dean fan. Yeah. But a lot of that sparks just from I'm a huge fan of Jared Padalecki. Right. He's he's like the sweetest man on the planet. Right. So like and you know you root for your friends. Right. I'm like I'm Team Dean. I can't be Team Jess because that's just arrogant and I'd be a fucking asshole. So yeah, I mean I. I I also have never been one of those actors that veers too far away from the script. Mm-hmm. The script is is the written word. Mm-hmm. That is what I have to mm-hmm. guide me. That's the roadmap. That's that's, you know, Google Earth. It's something like that yeah. where you just focus on that and I would never dream too far about well, I wonder, you know, what would happen right. if, if if Rory had left with Jess and what that trajectory could have been or would have been and yeah, And I still don't. Mm-hmm. And I and I still even, even after the four movies came right. out on Netflix and people will walk up and be like, was it just his baby? And I go, <laughs> no, it wasn't. You're just crushing dreams. I, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I don't mean to. I right. really, truly don't mean to. But it also, it wasn't his. <laughs> no. So maybe I'm, I'm just pulling the Band-Aid off and be like, guys, it's just not deal his. With it. Yeah, it's not. So
0: when that third season came to an end, mm-hmm. you had... I don't know if, if you knew this before or after that break between them, but there were other plans for your character to live on. There and was. I wonder if you can share what those were and also how you were impacted by the fact that they did not pan out.
2: So after the fir- my first season of Gilmore, which was their second season, mm-hmm. at the very end of it, Amy and Dan pulled me to the side and said, hey, look, we're going to spin your character off next year. You're going to have, we're going to create a whole other show. We're going to lay that out over the course of the third season, mm-hmm. and we love you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm going to have my own show. Okay, great, I'm in. And it was played out over the course of the next, I think we did those 20, 20, no, 22 episodes, mm-hmm. and on the 21st episode, it was an entire Jess episode about launching him into that next move, which was Venice, California, the relationship with his father Mm -hmm. and kind of understanding that whole dynamic. And so we shot it and it was great. And then we went on break and I'm like, cool, next year when I come back, it's going to be shooting in Venice as opposed to Warner Brothers Burbank. Mm -hmm. And cool, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. And then I remember I flew to the upfronts in Mm -hmm. New York and I was out there and then the show wasn't going. There w- it was just Gilmore. There was no Winward Circle. I think mm-hmm. it was called was the mm-hmm. component. And I remember Dan and Amy saying to me like, "Hey, so they're not doing it. Um, we know your contract is over because mm-hmm. I only had a two year contract for the second and third mm-hmm. season on Gilmore. You know, but you know you're always welcome here, and we're still gonna write for you. But we also think maybe it's time for you to like." burst out on your own thing. Mm-hmm. And the studio and the network actually tried to to figure out what to do with me too, because I think they had built this commodity, you yeah, know, and, and, and they invested. they'd invested time. And so there there was talk at one point of putting me on West Wing. There was talk of putting me on ER. Mm. And then that just didn't happen.
0: And let me just interrupt for one sec to ask, like, did you ever get any reason why it didn't go forward? Because I had read one thing where they said... You had shot a pilot, but you actually had not shot a Windward
2: Circle pilot? No, the the pilot, in essence, was episode 21 gotcha. of the third season.
0: With this Rob Estes, who was going to play your... Yeah. Who was your father? Rob
2: Estes, yeah.
0: And so now, when they can no longer do anything for you, really... It's not happening with West Wing or this other, these other options. Yeah.
2: Well, my yeah, my contract was up. Right. And I got an opportunity to go on a show called American Dreams. Yep, remember. And that was a blast. I did the entire third season, you know, playing Chris Pearson, who the kind of rebel rouser again, mm-hmm. to Britney Snow's Meg Pryor. But in between
0: then, in between those two shows, mm-hmm. I have read that there was a point where you were ready to, you were just understandably a little depressed about the whole situation, especially because it had been teed up like it was a sure thing. And so at your lowest point, what was your plan for
2: the future? That was the first time in my career I wanted to stop. Stop acting. Stop acting altogether Mm -hmm. because it was one of those moments where the business outweighed the arts. Mm -hmm. And I was disappointed at that realization but yet, that was also really empowering. And that sparked in me the idea of how can I ensure that I'm not waiting for someone to give me an opportunity? And that was when I started thinking about, well, what if I produced? What mm-hmm. if I directed? What if I created for you know, all these talented groups of friends? And because it didn't work out with these other shows and... And Studio Contracts, I'm like, well, let me just set this thing up with my friend who we like the same movies, directors, books. This is books. Russ Cundiff. Yeah, this is my partner, Russ, of 14 years now.
0: And as a result, you guys started Divide Pictures, Divide which Pictures. is still going. Still going, man. Yeah. Still going. So you go into American Dreams, mm-hmm. as you say another kind of, I guess everybody's describing bad boy, boyfriend, right? Another kind of, kind of yeah, like, you yeah. know. Then
2: I guess in the midst of that, you hear about Rocky. There was actually more before Rocky. So I did American Dreams for that one season and when that ended, I went back to Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. I did this show called Bedford Diaries for one of my who who became one of my mentors, mm-hmm. Tom Fontana. Oh, yeah. I mean the great Tom Fontana, you know the guy's legendary and yeah. what he's built as as a TV producer, mm-hmm. you know, starting as a playwright and what he's built. So I was back at back at Warner Brothers doing a show for them. And it was the last show to launch on the WB network. So Tom and I take credit for closing down the WB <laughs> network with a show that... In return
0: re- for them not doing... Sure.
2: <laughs> totally, totally. But then when that show ended, I was living in New York and I got home from from shooting that. And right when I got home, I had this audition for Rocky Balboa. Now, was that just the fact that you had an audition a very big deal? It was a huge it was a huge deal because they didn't want to see me at first. Okay. I think it was yeah, it was actually Russ. Russ said, Hey buddy, they're doing a Rocky Balboa movie. I think there's a kid in it. Like or I know there's a kid in because yeah. 'cause we've all watched other movies, but I think he's grown up now, mm-hmm. so maybe, you know, you should call your reps and get the audition. So I called my agent at the time and he said, We already brought you up, they don't want to see you And I go, What? Why don't they want it? he goes, Well, from what we hear, they're looking for someone that's very different than Than Sly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, different how? Like, what do you want? I don't understand. They said, hey, well, someone bookish and nerdy. I'm like, has anybody fucking seen me lately? I'm like, I'm not knocking down buildings. (laughs) Right. I'm a a 27-year-old, probably still pretty slight built guy. I'm sure I could, you know, walk in a little more buttoned up. So I kind of kicked and pushed and clawed, and I got in the room. And who else was in the room? The first round was just casting directors. But but the second round, I was with Sly. And, you know, Sly, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a very similar moment that I'd had earlier, a few years earlier with, with Amy and Dan, where they just Sly just wanted to see me. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to be in the same room with me and see what I was like. And I remember at one point in the course of my audition, but it wasn't even an audition because he said to me, he goes, you know, kid, I've seen your tape. I know you can act. You're pretty great. But uh, I just want to make sure we meet and, mm-hmm. you know, just talk. And that kind of put me at ease because I, I didn't have to prove myself as an actor. I mm-hmm. guess maybe the tape already did that. Right, right. And so we just kind of talk. And at one point, we start laughing about something Sly and I do. And he looks at me. And then he says to the casting directors, goes, wow, his lip, it even hooks down like mine does. Because <laughs> I've got this this crooked mouth since birth.
0: Well, I, I not to get on a total diversion, mm-hmm. but just reading about this. It's actually the same thing for both of you that causes that? Maybe. I have
2: no idea. Yeah. I'm not sure. For you, you are just born. I was just born that way. It's I was like just some born. Nerves, yeah. yeah, it's like just nerve damage or yeah. something. But like my, my lower left lip just doesn't want to move. If I smile, it's crooked. If <laughs> right. I talk, it's crooked. Everybody's like, hey, Milo, can we get a, you know, cameras on your left? Could we get a smile? on my like, guys, I am smiling. I'm smiling so fucking big right now. I promise you. <laughs> but it worked to your advantage there. It worked to my advantage right. there. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I'm, I'm on Balboa, you know, right off the heels of a show that I did for closing down the WB network and
0: <laughs> yeah it's really been a roller coaster. Yeah
2: and and even while I was filming Balboa in Philly, cause we we started in December in Vegas and LA. Right. And then at, after the first of the year we went to Philadelphia and we filmed for a month and a half and while I was in Philly I had an audition for this TV show called Heroes. Right.
0: Right which yeah. I'm uh, but isn't it funny also just talking about like kind of full circle things that with this is us mm-hmm. you come back around
2: with Stallone. Right? Yeah, well, Fogelman, he said, hey, man, why don't you come up, come up to the writer's room? And, and we went up to the writer's room. I think it was Mandy and I together. Mm-hmm. And they were just kind of laying out what the season was going to look like. And they said, there's this, you know, storyline that we're doing for Justin Hartley's character for his Kevin. And, you know, he's going to be in a big movie and get a break and this and that. And we want like a big movie star. And they named one guy. And I'm like, nah, I heard bad things about that guy. <laughs> and they said, but who we really want is someone like Stallone. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh rad! I'm like, Sly would be great. Right. And then there was just none of the writers spoke. Dan didn't speak. Nobody said a word, and they're all just looking at me. I'm like, Are <laughs> you got to
0: make the call. <laughs> you guys want me
2: to call him? And they're like, yeah. Had you guys kept in touch over the decade? We we can't. We had yeah. not a lot. Yeah. But every time I would be in the same room, of course, it's like, I mean, here's a guy that for two months. I mean, I'm playing his kin. I'm playing his kid. Mm-hmm. So y- you develop a relationship and, and a respect, especially playing a son to a father. But for me personally, there was a lot of awe watching him work because he was writing, directing, producing, mm-hmm. and starring. And those were the things that I had yeah. kind of set in motion right around those same years. So I, was, I felt like I was in grad school.
0: And people I was, forget the original Rocky was really an independent production yeah made for a
2: million dollars yeah Yeah. like MGM still had they didn't have an idea that it was sly they thought it was another good looking actor but they didn't they didn't expect it to be Stallone when they first saw the the dailies
0: so heroes you were with from day one till they closed shop four seasons later yeah and you say you were auditioning during Rocky Balboa Mm -hmm. but how was it pitched to you because as a concept it's a little out
2: there for TV. I mean I mean I I grew up on comic books. Yeah. I grew up on superheroes, you know, I mean, everything that I read and watched cartoon wise was Batman, Superman, mm-hmm. Aquaman, Submariner, like right. all these different characters. I just, I ate it up. My dad would take me to a comic book shop once a week, this place in, in orange that's no longer there called Fredonia Funnies. It was, you know, that was what we did on Wednesdays right. when new comic books came out. So to hear a show that was basically superheroes, I was like, that sounds cool. for. One of the major broadcast networks, NBC. Correct, yeah. And I I went and I, I hopped on the train from Philly to New York. I put myself on tape. And then when I got home, the week I got home from Balboa, they said, hey, the producers on Heroes want to meet with you and have you read for them. And I went, great. So I went in and did the reading. The next thing I know, they're like, hey, they want to test you. And then the next thing I know, like, I've got the job.
0: And this is Peter Petrelli, Mm -hmm. a hospice nurse who has the ability to mimic the abilities of others, Mm -hmm. which is basically all these characters that have some amazing ability. And I guess you were kind of, as a show, ahead of the curve. I'm trying to think when all the superhero stuff really
2: blew up. Right after that, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Heroes was the first of its kind. You know, of course you'd had a version of a Superman type of show. You'd had, you know, Bionic Woman in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You'd had The Million Dollar Man or like any of these kind of like superhuman-esque type of shows. But this was the first that really felt like the X-Men. Yeah. An emerging world of of different people. And I thought that was actually really genius to say, hey, here are people that are different from us. Mm-hmm. Let's address that and let's find the positivity in that. You know, I think it, it also, it kind of, was falling into line with the way, you know, the world was working of kind of like splitting people apart and for their differences and saying, no, no, no. this person's different. We need to embrace it.
0: It's interesting also that we're now used to things that have happened since Heroes first went on the air with like the Dark Knight, for instance, the industry has made a habit of kind of holding its nose up at comic book inspired material and they don't give it, even if it's done really well, like A Dark Knight or Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman or something more recently, people can love it to death, they can get great reviews, but they will not give it major accolades. And yet in the first season of Heroes, Mm -hmm. or for the first season of Heroes, you guys got a Best Drama Series nomination. People don't remember that.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because what we were telling the story of were these people living this very human experience, even though they were unique and extraordinary. And I, I, I think that's even the same thing with This Is Us. It's it's a human experience mm-hmm. of this family, which is unique and extraordinary, but without the superpowers. Right, Like playing Jack Pearson, you know, he is a superhero because he's a dad.
0: Mm-hmm. A good dad, yeah. So why was it that four seasons in, in your understanding, why did the show get—why did they pull the plug?
2: First, I think the formula changed on the show. Second season— you know, everybody blame. they will quote unquote, air quote, blame the writer strike. But I think the writer strike actually helped us from going down a path of some stories that maybe weren't going to work. Mm-hmm. But I remember the formula changing because the first season was about a small group of people in a larger world, small group of people with powers in a larger world that doesn't have them. And then it flipped and the next season, everybody's got them. Yeah. And only a couple people didn't have them. It's not and it was special. Yeah. the There's nothing special about it. And what I started to see was story taking over from character. And even in the fourth season, what I started to really realize was the decisions my character, Peter Petrelli, had made for three seasons previous. Now in the fourth year, everything was opposite. And it was opposite not from a... You know, something happened to this character, so now he's doing things different. It's just to push a story, and what I saw were were storylines that just they they weren't serving the characters anymore. And I think people grew tired of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you weren't caught off guard when they asked not at it. all, man. Yeah, you not at all. I, I totally saw it coming. I mean, even in, the, in the, the, the hype of the first season, we were all sitting on a panel for something. I can't remember what it was. It was right at the end of the first season. Mm-hmm. And someone asked uh, in the audience or a journalist, said, "You know, are you, so you guys just riding this wave of, of elation and you're, you're excited and is this just the best thing ever? And everybody's like, yeah, this is great. And then I spoke up and I said, but at some point it's going to end. And everyone turns and looks at me like, are you out of your fucking mind? And I go, guys, it's television. Mm-hmm. It is. I said, at some point, people will not watch. Right. At some point, this will end mm-hmm. because everything does. Yeah. And so, no, I wasn't surprised. And look, there were some politics going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. that maybe people could investigate and figure out. But well, I
0: mean, I think the network was changing leadership, right?
2: The network was changing leadership. The studio was changing leadership. There was a lot of things going on that that I felt I kind of felt bad for the audience because a lot of people still say, "Man, what happened to that show? Why didn't you kill Siler? Why you know this, that, and the other?" and <laughs> and it's it's a bummer because you know, hey, look, I'm a hired gun, but yet I can't ever take my character mask off. So I'm the one that if someone looks at me and goes, "Oh, hey, there's Peter," let me ask Peter what the why the F he didn't do this thing that I thought he would. There's only so much I can say or do. So, you know, the sad part is I think there was a, a real willing audience with Mm -hmm. that show that felt like we turned our back on them. But really, you know, we were all casualties of some real big inner politics as well as, you know, a formula changing.
0: And it is, hard to understand. This has come up with other episodes with people who have been a part of superhero stuff on TV or comic related stuff Mm -hmm. on TV. Why, when a movie version of these things, you know, comic related thing can just draw so many people and yet ratings wise, it's always been a challenge on TV. And I just wonder if it's almost Mm -hmm. the, the parallel to putting out, you know, they found out that just this year, Maybe don't put out a Star Wars movie every six months. It's a little, it takes away the novelty. Yeah. Maybe there's something about, you know, people love superheroes, but not being inundated by them because it I does I would take... say i
2: don't know man talk to the cw how many shows right. they have they've got a whole universe of dc shows and then also now like look at what marvel's doing with netflix and right. you know jessica jones and punisher yep go 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 yeah. john bernthal my boy john <laughs> bernthal so I, I mean
0: it's a case by case you have to look sure at it. it is yeah. case
2: by case but yeah. I, I agree i mean even now people like say to me like oh my what would you want to play in the comic world i said i want to play a ballerina Maybe I want to do something different. Maybe right. I want to play an attorney. Right. Maybe I want to play something in the real world. Maybe right now what we need are real people I think so. against human struggle. Yeah. And, and that may be a little more inspiring than someone wearing a cape right. or a cowl or anything like that. Right. So the
0: second time that you were tempted to get out of this mm-hmm. racket... Yeah, was after that. Even though you saw it coming, Mm -hmm. even it doesn't make it any less crushing, right?
2: Yeah, after Heroes, I didn't get hired for a year, and it wasn't for lack of trying. (laughs) No one was buying what I was selling. (laughs) Nobody, nobody wanted you know, from that Ventimiglia uh, stand (laughs) at the market. So yeah, I was I was a little disheartened, and I was a little broken, and I was just tired, you know. And again, it, it felt. Like it came down to business. So, mm-hmm. versus doubling down on my producing, I was like, okay, let me figure out what we can do on it. But I was kind of plotting an exit.
0: What would you have done?
2: <laughs> I was looking at kind of cashing in, you know, like sell my home, see what I could just kind of cash in retirements or pensions or mm-hmm. whatever. I was going to move to Italy because I have a European passport mm-hmm. and I was going to buy a motorcycle literally have one backpack and ride around until i found a farm i wanted to work on would you own that farm or you'd be working no for no I'd be, I'd be working for someone Oh my gosh. yeah it was literally just like and you were seriously thinking about it. oh yeah oh i was i was like like in the middle of like getting ready to sell i was like liquidating just oh, to be like God. just to yeah. have cash and be like okay i have enough to live you know what does life look like so what derailed that plan i got a job i got an acting job My partner, Russ said, hey, there's this movie and it's I read it. It's an interesting role. And I think, buddy, I think you can nail it. But they also they want us to produce. And I said, okay. And he goes, listen, it's tiny. It's a micro budget, but I think we should do it. And I go, okay, pal, if you're into it, I'm into it. Let's go. And we did it. We shot this tiny little movie called Static. Uh And then right on the heels of that, I got another opportunity in a movie called Kiss of the Damned with Zan Cassavetes. Uh And I'd read this script and I read this character. I'm like, I can do that. And Zan, you know, comes from one of those legacy Uh families. And I was like, God, I I really want to work with her and getting on set with her. I was like. She is as talented as the rest of her family. Mm-hmm. This is a great experience. And I had those two films back to back and they were tiny, mm-hmm. tiny, 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 like static cost me money. <laughs> Kiss the Damned. Right. I, I barely broke even mm-hmm. being in it. But then after that, actually, while I was shooting Kiss the Damned in Connecticut, mm-hmm. I had put myself on tape for this Adam Sandler movie called That's My Boy. Mm-hmm. And I remember my agent at the time said to me, he goes, Ma, you got to, you got to put yourself on tape tonight. And I was like, you know, Jay, I'm like, do I really have to do this tonight? I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I just, you know, had a scene where I'm vampire sucking blood all day. Like it's (laughs) late. Like, I'm not going to get off work until two in the morning. He goes, it has to be tonight. And you have to put yourself on tape for this. He goes, there is no, no, Mm I, I, I. I want to see the tape. And I go, okay, great. And he goes, you're actually going to send it directly to the producers, not even to me, to the producers. Mm -hmm. And I go, "Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. And he says, and by the way, like, you're up against all the big names. And I go, okay, great. (laughs) So, you know, I wipe wipe the blood off, take the fangs out. (laughs) I grab a PA and our first AC, our first assistant camera. I'm like, all right, guys, you know, for you, here's a bottle of Jack. For you, here's a case (laughs) of beer. Meet me in my hotel room and... You're going to read with me. You're going to tape me. And forgive me, I, I play a, a terribly ridiculous character. <laughs> that's that's my, my nice way of saying, uh, right. I'm going to strip down to my underwear and hit my manhood because my character's drunk. And I think that might be kind of funny. Right, right. And yeah, so I put myself on tape. I sent the tape into the producers at two in the morning. I got an immediate response of, holy shit, this is amazing. By two o'clock the next day, Adam Sandler was giving me a call saying, kid, it's going to be a great summer. We're going to have a lot of fun. And I'd beaten out. All these other names wow. that I was always impressed with, and that move kind of turned into this, you know, this this rock rolling down a hill, picking up other other pebbles to make it a larger boulder. And where did that stop? I feel like it hasn't. I feel yeah, like I've kind of I've kind of been going. From I should say stop.
0: Where did that lead to? Because I'm sure I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. I mean, how did these guys back at NBC a decade after going there for Heroes? How did they? It wasn't a straight offer, right? It was no. come in and mm-hmm. audition. audition. But I mean, first you get a script somehow. What brought yeah. that about?
2: I had gotten, this was, let's say June. I had finished a movie, a little independent film called Devil's Gate up in Winnipeg. And I got back to LA and I had these two opportunities on two other TV shows to play the lead that didn't go my way. Mm-hmm. Literally, they picked other other actors. Mm-hmm. And again, I was like, Okay, I'm you know, wasn't that wasn't supposed to happen. Right. And I read and this is now June to October. I kind oh, of settled 2015? in the 15 15 and I kind of settled into life a little bit and then by October I get this script called called 36 which was the original title of This Is Us. Uh-huh. And I I read it and I was on a plane and uh, I mean, by the end of it, I was crying, like really deeply moved by this piece of material. And right when I finished the last page, I turned right back to the first page and I just kept reading again. And you knew that they were sending it to you to
0: for the possibility of you playing
2: Jack. Jack. It was yeah. always Jack. It was always Jack. I mean, even when I read it, I was like, I'm sure I'm not the actor character. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> cool. I could be the dad. Right. Sure. I guess I'm, I'm at that point in my, my existence now. <laughs> But he was also, one of my good friends that I produced with, a guy named Kevin Mann, mm-hmm. he was buddies with Dan Fogelman, and he'd always tell Dan Fogelman stories, like how great of a guy he is. And then my attorney, Jeff Frankel, he also represents John Rikwa and Glenn Ficar, the directors. That's and crazy. And he spoke very highly of those guys. Right. So going into this room, you know, yes, it was a reading. Yes, I was prepared. Yes, I ditched, you know, my sides because the word stuck in my mind, like my own thoughts, I walked into a very warm room Mm -hmm. because as much as I'd heard about these three men, they had heard about me through those same mutual Mm -hmm. connections. So when I walked in, you know, Dan likes to say, you know, here comes Milo with his long hair and his beard and his holding his motorcycle helmet. (laughs) And I just remember being welcomed with smiles and talking about our mutual friends Mm -hmm. And then at the end of just a conversation, I was like, okay, so you guys want to, like, let's read it. I'm like, let's do it. Right. And they're looking at me like, where are your sides? I'm like, no, I got them. They're in my head. I know. Them. I'm sure that made an impression. Well, I think it does. I mean, there there was probably, I think I was about 20, maybe 26 years old, I stopped walking into auditions with sides. because mm-hmm. so I realized, I said, if I'm worried about the words, then I'm going to miss the emotional connection or experience I need to have to show people that I can play this man. Mm-hmm. And so it became something that I just said, fuck it, just read, just learn your lines yeah, dude. learn your lines when you walk in, be prepared, right. but don't have a plan. Mm-hmm. Be open to the experience. Things can shift, things can move. If you have a plan, you'll get derailed when your plan doesn't go according to how you dream it up. But if you're prepared, well, then you can adapt and go right. in any direction.
0: So that's the first audition. Were there a series, mm-hmm. I would imagine? Basically, coming out of that one, what did they say?
2: Coming out of that one, immediately after I, I heard that, I was now the guy to beat. And yeah. I went, oh, okay, great. I mean, this is exciting. I wasn't planning a move. I mean, it was off cycle. So there were no other opportunities around for films or television, right. maybe a guest arc here or there. But I was like, oh, this is like... That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So I was like, great. And then it was, hey, so we're going to negotiate the contract. We're going to bring you in. You're going to read with a couple different women. And we're going to see who has chemistry.
0: We had Mandy on here a year ago. And she was saying that the understanding among those women was that, yes, you are the guy who it's going to be with. My question is, and you know, she shared what her first impressions mm-hmm. were of you. I want to ask you, had you ever met her before and was she clearly going to get it coming out of her read or were you, not to take anything away from her, but was it a close, could you have seen it going to somebody else?
2: The first time I laid eyes on Mandy Moore, I was at a premiere for a movie called Walk to Remember. <laughs> no, no joke, man. That's crazy. I, literally, I Yeah, I got off of the, off of work at Gilmore Girls and my buddy was running the premieres and i couldn't make it to the actual film but he said hey why don't you come to the party after and i i kind of came up with shane west yeah yeah, yeah. you know like shane and i were young actors at 18 and he was like megastar you know doing all the work and Mm kind of like the the center of the hurricane and so i'm like oh well let me go at least say hi to shane and i get to this party you know that kind of like 10 stack deep of people and my friend Troy's friends, Milo come here and waves me in and I walk in I see Mandy Moore across the room I'm like oh that's Mandy Moore and then I turn there Shane I'm like oh hey Shane I'm like right. just want to say hi I got to go home and study because I got to work tomorrow morning right. and then I left so you didn't talk to her that night no never met her the first time we met was at the test and Dan hadn't given me any indication of who he liked between Mandy or the two other actresses mm-hmm. that I read with but after that reading it was very clear that it had to be Mandy mm-hmm. she like it had to be her <laughs> you know there were there was an in, there was an instant and I know Mandy says it very sweetly. she's like it was palpable from the beginning and I'm like <laughs> but I, I I definitely saw I saw my acting change because of what she was doing and I think she was able to pick up on my change and raise her game
0: what do you think she was doing being herself. Yeah.
2: What I've learned is that Mandy and I work similarly. We show up prepared and then we just exist. Mm -hmm. And Mandy showed up prepared and she was there willing to, you know, pretend that I was her husband and she was through nine months pregnant with triplets. And it just, (laughs) it just made sense. It just clicked.
0: What scene did you guys do together? Do you remember?
2: We did the the pilot opener. The opener. Yeah, the opener where she's she's got the cupcake and and you know dancing with the lingerie over right. her clothes and she's 9 months pregnant we you know plop down on the bed and I'm in a Steelers towel and I was going to say in the in the No, in no, the no, no no, you know, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just no, no, movie movie magic <laughs> right, those other right. moments. I kept my back to a wall for an entire day of filming. <laughs> right. An <laughs> entire morning of filming, but we did that scene and it just, it just worked. And I remember looking back at Dan sitting in the back of the room, just smiling, because I think he saw it yeah. too. Yeah. And then after that moment, it was, yeah, it was, it was Mandy. So just a couple of for the record
0: things for mm-hmm. listeners. You have never been a father, right? No, I have not. But the show is set at almost the same time at which you and your two siblings yeah. grew up and were raised by parents, including a father who was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much do you think you've drawn upon your own upbringing in playing? I guess everybody you can't not,
2: you know, yeah. use who you are. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be in a fitting and I'll put on some clothes from Jack in the 90s, like 95, 96. I'm like, oh, my God, I look like my father. <laughs> and then I know that the clothes are right. Right. You know, it's it's hard not to draw on those things that are instinctual and inherent and kind of like deep in my cells mm-hmm. and deep in my soul. I mean, even down to my father and Jack are very different men, Mm -hmm. but there are similarities, I think, to parenting. My dad always wanted to give us the best and give us everything. And he was entertaining, but also, you know, like Jack, like my dad disciplined us like Mm -hmm. in a very, very direct way. You never want to piss. I never (laughs) wanted to piss my
0: father off. But you've also pointed out in other things that your parents, neither your parents nor you really touch alcohol. And that obviously is a major difference between the, the character. Yeah.
2: I mean, you know, I was never raised around like there is alcoholism in my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd heard about that. And so I think it was always one of those things like, hey, just be aware and be careful of that. Mm-hmm. But I was never raised around it. So that was actually difficult for me when I was playing Jack the alcoholic.
0: Right. Where do you and, uh,
2: and, well, reference? I, yeah. I had to talk to friends of mine that I know have been through programs. Mm-hmm. And what they told me was there's not a moment that they're not thinking about it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether it's thinking about their actions because of bad choices or the actual, like, I wish I was drunk mm-hmm. or high or anything. And I started to imagine what, what existence must be like, what walking through your day must be like, one, wanting that all the time or two, being that all the time. Right. And you know, again, I had this beautiful roadmap with the scripts that Fogelman and the writers gave me, but it was, let me really do my homework on this disease and understand what it does not only to an individual, but what it does to an individual's family. Right. Because that is the most horrific impact, is a one person's choice that, it, that ripples out and yeah. impacts so many different people.
0: So you went to work on the show, and actually the first scene that you shot from what I read was also this first scene that we see, which we were just talking about in the audition, right? So you are yeah. thrown into the deep end.
2: Oh, yeah. Day one, I show up. There's a bunch of, uh, we call them Houdinis, <laughs> which are covers for your manhood <laughs> right? because it makes it disappear. <laughs> and they're all flesh colored because, right. you know, you know. Yeah, I know. And that was it. And, right. I, and I was a walk on a set with a robe. And then, at a certain point, you know, lose the robe and and and. Good I'm, to see you again, I'm, Mandy. Yep, and I'm yeah, good to see you, Mandy. And I'm giving a towel. Right. Film the scene, and then when you know we change angles and whatnot, <laughs> I would literally, if I didn't have time to put my robe back on because we were moving quick. I would just hold the towel over myself and then just kind of stand against a wall <laughs> because nobody wants to see the back, my backside. It was just, it was one of those things. It was like, cause we see your backside before we see your face. I think Yeah, my ass precedes my yeah, face. Like- <laughs> The funny part was, it was in the script. It was right. scripted. No we way. see Jack's bare ass walking onto <laughs> into the bedroom, and sitting down on the mattress, and Dan will say, "He goes, I pictured a much different ass." <laughs> he goes, "You know, I, I didn't realize Milo might have, you know, been so fit." But of course, Jack works in construction, so yeah, ah, he's lifting gotta... bags of concrete. Sure, <laughs> yeah. So he's you not... had a few months to get yourself uh, together, right? <laughs> I think by the time I got the job, it was n- November. Yeah, we shot in January, but it wasn't. I, it wasn't on my mind, right. oh God, I gotta do squats. It wasn't that. It was it was I literally at that point of, of booking the role, it right. was let me expand this man's heart. Let yeah, me expand yeah, yeah. this man's dreams. Let me expand his desire to to have a family and knowing he's going to get three all at once what must he be going through <laughs> and so it was not let's worry about a physique no, I'm of course it literally yeah. was let's worry about being a husband right. and a father and and all that so the pilot sort of
0: conditioned audiences to be ready for many twists and turns and shocking mm-hmm. and emotional surprises of course which happen throughout the show but Were you guys, even knowing how dramatic it was and what you had to deal with, that you had really good material and everybody in it is very talented, did you ever imagine that you could come through here with the size of the pilot audience that you guys got? I mean, it went right off the bat, it was a hit.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, before before people saw the, the pilot, they saw a the trailer and right. it was a hit. 15 million news or something. No, it was like 90. Oh, 90. So Maybe it was 15 in the first week. crazy. Was, it was 15 in the first day the first and day. a half. <laughs> I remember getting off the plane to go to the upfronts in New right. York and I was with Mandy and I were traveling together and when the plane landed, she goes, oh my God, do we have a trailer? I'm like, oh, we have a trailer. Oh, just hit. Cool, great. That's <laughs> awesome. And then by that night, Like the trailer had already had, I think, nine million views. And everybody was like, wait, what? Well, I think the trailer even inspired that. I think it's Dan Fogelman Magic. He's one to elicit emotion and combine words with music and the simplest of looks in someone's eye to make an audience or a viewer feel. Mm -hmm. It's just. I don't even know how to describe it other than it's just, it's, it's pure magic.
0: And it was not only touching the masses, which is not a small thing at Mm -hmm. all either, but even the hard-bitten people in this industry, for you guys to be the first, ultimately, you know, at the end of that first season to be the first network drama series to get a best drama series Emmy nomination in six years. What was the six
2: years before that? The Good Wife, I think. The Good Wife. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, and so then that means that four years before that it was was heroes. Heroes, yeah.
0: So I mean, it's a pretty like it's it doesn't happen anymore for some of the reasons we already referenced. It's it's tougher to hold people when you have to deal with commercials, when you have to watch what you say and show, when you have, and yet to overcome those hurdles and still Mm -hmm. be recognized in the same company as the shows
2: that can do whatever they want
0: is a pretty big testament.
2: As well as we don't have the budgets that a lot of these shows have. You know, they're shooting. 10 episodes, these, you know, these big magical shows, you know, we're shooting 18. We don't have as much money. We really don't. Mm -hmm. And, but also more to what you're saying, Scott, it's, it's, it's a testament to great writing, Mm -hmm. great acting, great storytelling, and something that we can all relate to, which is being a person in a family. For sure.
0: How quickly and in what ways did your life change as a result of this is us? I'm talking about out in the world. You want to go to the supermarket. Mm -hmm. When did you notice that this was having an impact?
2: Right when the show, really when the show started to air. I think people had seen the trailer and they were excited about it. But it was when the first couple episodes had come out that I really realized being out in the world, people wanted to talk to me or engage with me or, or anything, you know, I'd be just walking down the street and, you know, a gal pushing a stroller that, and she's pregnant is like, love, love, love. <laughs> That's all she said. <laughs> love it. I you love you it. You get a lot of hugs, right? I get, yeah, a lot of hugs. Right. Yeah.
0: Not always. <laughs> Opportune times maybe, but you got to. Yeah, not yeah. always,
2: but that, that kind of comes with the territory, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I have, I'll say for myself, a kind of a line of how accessible I can be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, if I'm eating a meal, it's like, "Ah, maybe I just want to sit and eat a meal and have a conversation with a friend or something. But also, like, being out in the world, I understand that I am on a show and in a position where I and the work that I'm doing with the collective group of people is making such an impact that someone on the other end is being brave enough to walk up to a complete stranger... A complete stranger that they know so intimately mm-hmm. because I've been in their homes mm-hmm. and say, hey, I just wanted to meet you mm-hmm. or hey, can I have a photo or I'm sorry to disturb you. I know you're just trying to like eat or talk to mm-hmm. your friend, but I'm a huge fan. And I realize that 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 is a bold move, you know, and it means something to me mm-hmm. because it means that people are watching the work that I'm doing and the work that my crew is doing and that that our cast is mm-hmm. doing and they're enjoying it.
0: And I guess it's certainly better than the alternative where nobody cares enough
2: to I mean, say anything. and anonymity is, you know, <laughs> if I, if I, if I could turn the switch on and turn the switch off, right, it'd be it kind of nice, nice it'd to be control. nice. Yeah. Yeah. You go, go into some countries in the world and people don't know who you are. Yeah. like, this is amazing.
0: <laughs> oh, we just had uh, the last episode was Ricky Martin and we we're saying like right after living La Vida Loca, uh, that must've been horrible. And he's like, yeah, I just went to India every time I couldn't take it anymore. He went in and Plenty of people
2: knew him there too, but you know, it was a little better. Yeah, it's funny. It's like my safe place in Japan. Is it? <laughs> yeah, is that where you go a lot now? I've I've, I've made a couple of trips over there. And I just yeah. I really enjoy it, and I've got friends there, and yeah. picked up on the language, and so it's great. Yeah, the show is obviously all over the
0: place chronologically. For the actors, how logistically does this work? Are you guys shooting multiple portions of episodes at a time just to knock out a certain time period, or you're just Every episode.
2: On a Monday, I could be wearing a mustache. On a Tuesday, I could be clean shaven. On a Wednesday, I could be in a full beard with right. the hair extensions. Right. And then wash, rinse, repeat. Right. You know, there. I've produced a movie around a beard, and I would never advise anyone to do that. <laughs> Not a beard that I was wearing either. Right. Another, an actor that really wanted a beard. And it was logistically tough. Mm-hmm. So to put that stress on writers to have episodes written or a makeup department to keep that continuity. We've got such talented artists in hair and makeup and wardrobe that we can. We have the luxury of bouncing around. You know, it is a dance. I know that the age makeup takes its toll on Mandy, so they don't really push her in that for several days in a row. They get maybe one or two days, and, and they, they know that it's hard to she wear. up on her Instagram yesterday. Yeah. It was insane. That's yeah, three and a half hours on and an hour off, and then and you at, get
0: a rash or whatever afterwards. And at
2: the end of the day, yeah, 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 it's like you never know how your skin's gonna really take to it. one product that you use this week, maybe next week, and it doesn't really work right. anymore. But Zoe Hay and Michael Wrights, are hair and makeup, and Halabamet our wardrobe, mm-hmm. they do such a wonderful job with preparing and their own artistry that we, the actors, just need to kind of slip into the decade actually mandy and i and you know the kids slip into the decade we're playing uh-huh. and then just exist right and like and for me having those touchstones of facial hair and hair being styled a certain way in the clothes that i'm wearing i know exactly oh this is jack in his 90s uh-huh. he's been through his drinking problem he's his kids are grown up he's trying to connect to his wife he has his whole history or jack with his mustache oh, he's kind of fought off his alcoholism or jack with the beard he's young he's bright he's excited about having you know being a new father Mm -hmm. jack clean shaven when he's young this man just got home from fucking war Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know so it helps me to know where the man is based on what i'm wearing what facial hair i have and what hairstyle i have interesting yeah
0: well for all of the first season obviously I mean, I guess (laughs) this could be on your tombstone. Everybody's asking how did Jack die, right? Mm -hmm. And we thought we were going to get the answer after the Super Bowl in 2017. Mm -hmm. 27 million people tuned in. Then we find out the cliffhanger is going to carry into the beginning of next season. Mm -hmm. The one that we've all most recently seen. When did you, though, learn the answer to that question? How
2: early on? I mean, I knew Jack was dead from when I read the script, the pilot. How I knew pretty early on, I mean, before we even started the season, the first season, really? I knew how he died. I didn't know if it was going to be told, when it was going to be told, but I knew that it had to do with a home fire. And I knew that Dan actually said, but he doesn't die in the fire, like he's going to make it out, but it has to do with that fire. And I go, okay. And then, you know, as the the season went on and and Dan and the writers had kind of fleshed it out a little bit more, it was like, oh, Oh, it was smoke inhalation. Oh, it was a heart attack. Oh, we're never going to see it. Oh, it happens. At the hospital, Rebecca's eating a candy bar and, and all these things. And it was like, whoa, it just, you know, I, I knew pretty early on.
0: And how did you guys guard against leaks? It was just you that knew or they told others? You know, or
2: I mean, I think, you know, I knew Mandy knew. I'm pretty sure the core, Chrissy Sterling, Justin mm-hmm. knew, Susan, Sully, mm-hmm. Ron. I think we, we all... Collectively, though, as a family, even since the beginning, I remember when the pilot had been shown, maybe even to critics, and we kind of made this ask that we want to make sure that we're not giving away the twist that they're a family because we want the audience to really have that understanding, that that moment of, oh, man, just kind of mind-blown experience of they're a family. I didn't see it coming. And I think the same was true with the fire and knowing how Jack died. It was important that the actors knew because it informed the performance. Less mine and more Sterling, right. Justin, for and Chrissy. Years, yeah. But we all wanted to protect that real first experience for the audience. And we went to great, great pains even while we were filming it to you know, shoot at a faraway location. Even there were moments where if we were in town filming... I wasn't on set. I physically wasn't there because people would have been looking for me and mm-hmm. seeing, you know, someone would have grabbed a photo and, and all of a sudden then everything would have been blown. And, you know, then it ruins the, the actual experience. I heard you guys would have scripts, certain colors that would be harder to yeah. copy and photocopy. Yeah, you, you can't photocopy a red, a red page. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You try and photocopy, it just comes out black.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right. So if those are the climax of the story for, for that portion of time, the fire and the hospital scene. Mm-hmm. Can you just take us through what it was like for you to actually go through those? One at the end of season one, the other at the beginning of season two.
2: I mean, at the end of season one when that that 18th episode came out and I remember feeling just the weight of having filmed an entire season of TV and, and leaving it on this note of what's going to happen to mom and dad. <laughs> I was satisfied. But then I'd go out in the world and, you know, the first person I bump into at the Disney lot for a meeting on something goes, yeah, I was really bummed I didn't get to see you die. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm thinking to myself, God, that's, <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty morbid, man. Right? <laughs> how do you think, how would you feel? Like, man, I really wanted to see Jesus. you die. <laughs> and that's when I started employing this line of let's not worry about how the man died. Let's focus on how he lived, Right. which I think is just a very important lesson in life mm-hmm. because... We all have to think about how we live our lives and, and kind of what the legacy we're going to leave behind, be it positive, negative, whatever. So I started kind of thinking about that. But then getting into the audience actually knowing, you know, from, let's say, the fire episode mm-hmm. on to, you know, when he died filming it all the way to its release mm-hmm. was, you know, thank God this is out. Mm-hmm. Thank God it's out there now.
0: Was that the feeling, though? Because I also wondered if a part of you was concerned about the fact that this has been so integral to what has driven people's interest in the show, that when you answer that question, could something be jarred about that?
2: No. I feel that's my confidence in Dan Fogelman, mm-hmm. Isaac Aptaker, Elizabeth Berger, K.J. Simon, like all of our writers that, you know, for months sit and create. Mm-hmm. I have such confidence in them that, that I didn't worry about revealing this big mystery of Dad's death, yeah. because there are other stories to tell, and they are just as gripping and just as engaging. And you know what? I'm one fifth of the show. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, I'm one fifth of a family on that show. I'm just Paul Pearson. There's Ma, and there's the three kids.
0: I thought it was interesting that you some of those decisions that you guys made, where you're talking about rather than have a guy in the hospital who's doing the obvious things that suggest he might be heading in a bad direction, there was a throat clearing. Then -hmm. you've got Mandy at the vetting machine. People are wondering, did I hear something or didn't I? Is that intentional or isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just stuff like that. How much input did you have on that stuff? How much thought went into it? What do you make of those little details that really make the show so moving?
2: You know, you don't want to tip your hand and and let people know what's coming but also I think there were very real circumstances to what would happen if you're in a burning house and like how much smoke you're taking in and what it really does to you and the clearing of the throat I remember having conversations with John and Glenn who had directed the pilot also directed mm. that episode and you know they had this idea of just <clears throat> <clears throat> but they said but we don't want it too much because we don't want people to know so I would do it from time to time. And I remember earlier in the day to shooting, let's say, the post-fire, I wouldn't talk. And so my voice register would be very, very low. Because if you're talking through the day, your voice warms up, your things get higher. And and if I kept my voice register very low, then it almost had this charred effect kind of on the inside. Mm -hmm. Kind of a smoky voice, Mm -hmm. so to say. And I was... Doing that, plugging that in, in in moments, but then when I watched the final final cut of the episode, almost all of them had been taken out, and I thought that was great. But what you do see, the last living moment of Jack, when Rebecca's standing in front of the TV and says, "Beck, you're covering, you're you're blocking the TV," <laughs> and she sticks her tongue at him. She walks away, and it goes back to Jack. Jack knew something was wrong all along. You he believe did, he did. Yeah, yeah. He did. He just wasn't going to. Share that with his wife. He was sparing her. And what was the, what we, I think, heard at the vending machine? I don't know. I think that was maybe a little ethereal. Who knows? I don't, (laughs) you know, there. But you recorded something. I did. And I recorded a lot of different versions of that. Some were a whisper, some were audible, some were louder. And, you know, I think the choice that Dan made of having it sound like it's in the other room but also kind of next to her at the same time lends itself to the interpretation of is that is that his spirit is that you know what is that was that really him calling out I mean you know from her walking out of the room to when you start hearing code blue and things going on in the background you're like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute that's a very fast amount of time Mm -hmm. for someone to pass to a doctor to walk out so you know as Hollywood does, we have to take certain liberties right. for story and for character. It all happened really fast, Jack's death. But, you know, I think Jack knew that something was wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you now look towards the future, the mm-hmm. that elephant in the room has been dealt with. Mm-hmm. But there, are, as you say, are so many other things to explore. You started in season two, and I think you said it was the most challenging aspect of it, was how does he communicate to his children, particularly his daughter, about... Mm-hmm the alcoholism aspect of it when they hold him on such a pedestal
2: that was that might have been one of the hardest scenes i'd ever filmed a lot of it because of friends that i knew like i'm welling up now thinking about it friends that i know who have dealt with alcoholism have told me they've had to admit to their kids they had a drinking problem and they're in tears when they're telling me and you know thank god for hannah zeal because doing a scene with her in that moment and she is just there with me and having to explain to her as Kate, you know, nothing was forced, nothing was pushed. She's just there listening. And Jack has to lift the weight and and really break down this... Statue, right. maybe that his daughter would kind of hold him in that high regard, you know? And it was hard. I th- that was a hard, probably the hardest moment all season. Wow. You know? And also, if we know anything about Jack, Jack doesn't cry. Right. Yeah, which is very, very indicative of a man of his era. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I had these long conversations with Dan, you know, about certain emotions that Jack or that I would feel as a human being, but Jack would never quite display. But as an actor, you know, sometimes. Sometimes actors feel like the weight of their acting is shown in the measure of their emotion. If you can cry, if you can actually cry on set, it's like, well, I'm a good actor. But really, it's like, well, no, what's right for the character? And Dan and I would have these conversations where I said, you know, I, I never really realized, but I, I didn't see my own father cry until I was 21 when his father had passed. Mm-hmm. And like that was the first time I saw my dad cry. It's powerful. Really powerful. Yeah. But I was 21. Right. So then I started kind of breaking down thinking, well, these kids were 17, mm-hmm. you know, when all 16, 17, when all this was going right. on. So no, 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 Jack doesn't need to cry. So I better hold my shit together, mm-hmm. but go right up to that edge, right to that edge and confidently or not so confidently just push through, but hold those tears, man, hold them back, hold everything back. I mean, and you know, I, I even hear it when I watched that episode, it's like there, but there are indications of, of a man breaking. Yeah. You know, there there's, there's, you know, the voice that goes because the throat is clenching because you're nervous and you're afraid, you know, there's, there's the stutter, there's the, you know, the kind of chin trembling and all those things, but that wasn't me planning. That was just Jack. One saving grace to this character is that after two seasons, knowing him so intimately, I get to take a break when they call action and it's only Jack existing. And then when they call cut, okay, I'm back to Milo in real life. But for those moments between action and cut, Jack is alive and he's living his existence. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of witness to it.
0: And I don't think anything breaks people more aside from the the actual passing of Jack than some of the rare but very powerful hallucination things where you actually oh, yeah. see him with his adult mm-hmm. kids where you're now with Starling and these, yeah. or you Justin know, Justin and Chrissy. Or Chrissy. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like the field of dreams. Let's, let's have a catch that like the fantasy that mm-hmm. so many people, anyone who's lost a parent who they had a good relationship yeah. has.
2: Well, I've even had moments I had this one really very incredibly vivid dream about my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I woke up sobbing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Scott, when I said I was crying, like I was sobbing like, like a kid. Mm-hmm. And it was so real. And in my heart, he was there. Mm-hmm. And that was actually him saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. And I knew it. But I've had those dreams in those moments. So, you know, to know that Jack is still very much alive in his kids' lives, it means something mm-hmm. to me. And it also means that, you know, the impact that we have on our loved ones. Mm -hmm. We really have to take care with that. We're going to make mistakes in life, but, you know, hopefully we keep our loved ones in mind.
0: Yeah. What's the timetable for season three? I think you guys are, the wheels are already in motion, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and if you could just share that and, and the fact that you feel there is a lot more about Jack, the fact, you know, that his death in the show is not a, ending because of yeah. the structure of this
2: show, which yeah. is so ingenious. I mean, if you really think about it, we've only known Jack for 36 hours. Right. Right. You know, I, th- I think we got a lot more to go with him. Right. That being said, we have covered a lot of his existence, but where we kind of dive in this year, we go further in the past uh, for the bigger story points. You know, we, we talk about Jack in Vietnam mm-hmm. and his brother mm-hmm. who he lost we talk about younger Jack and Rebecca, mm-hmm. kind of the courtship, how that played out. But also we're going to, we still have Jack with the teenagers, Jack with the the kiddos. That's the nice thing. You know, we get to go back and forth. The tough thing is kids grow up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> right. when when Mackenzie and, and Lonnie and Parker were eight when we started, well, they're 11, right. closing in on 11 now. So it's okay, so maybe we're, we're playing the age of them at 12. Mm-hmm. Then at a certain point, those kids start to bump up right. against Logan and Hannah and Niles. So how when does that mm-hmm. changeover start to kind of happen? It's like do? a mathematical equation it for really, these guys, It yeah. really is. It really is. But, you know, thank God we've got the best riding right. staff in, in the business, and right. they can figure it out. <laughs> Last question. Yeah. Do you own a crock pot? I own two. <laughs> I, I own one crock pot. And I own one all clad slow cooker. Them at all times. You're
0: not using them.
2: <laughs> They're very reliable. They are very reliable and make very delicious breakfasts and lunches and dinners. All right. Well, stay safe out there. Thanks, man. Scott. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, man. Great seeing you, buddy.